agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, and I, I, a special thanks to Jay. Uh, I at the last minute, Kristen had a had a colossal, catastrophic uh, equipment failure and with literally minutes to spare i texted jay and said can you can you fill in at the last minute he swooped in like a i said like some sort of a superhero i don't know an avenger or uh certainly not hawkeye uh, you're you're better than hawkeye quality but uh anyway Iron Man, yeah, captain I mean, america i always said if you were an avenger yeah. you'd be captain america i i'd be more of an ant-man spider-man type but anyway you are here and thank you so much jay uh we really appreciate that we also appreciate ooh, what a segue our newest patreon supporters scott and mike thank you guys so much and you all know the deal at this point when you're a patreon supporter you get our second full-length bonus episode every week that comes out right after the show so this week it's going to be a little bit later because we had to juggle some stuff around with jay's schedule but it will be out maybe in the uh mid to late afternoon on saturday you also get ad-free versions of all our shows other stuff at different levels you know what to do go to patreon.com slash politics guys to sign up check it all out and if you'd like that bonus show but you can't afford to support the podcast right now just send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you all set up and of course, we are also at Venmo at Politics Guys. Now, today, we are going to be talking about the Supreme Court's abortion ruling, the Texas voting law, uh, more on Afghanistan with President Biden's speech on the U.S. final exit, uh, Joe Manchin calling for a strategic pause on spending bills, uh, Social Security and Medicare insolvency, uh, the House Armed Services Committee, uh, uh, a po- sorry, Proposing legislation that spends oh, around $24 billion more than the Biden administration wanted and okaying the idea of women registering for the draft. And finally, is minority leader Kevin McCarthy threatening tech firms? Uh, we'll get to all of that between the regular show and the bonus show. Before we do that, we need to take a quick break and we will be right back to kick things off. All right, Jay. So are you ready to go? I am. I, I am see. Ready, I, I, I am less I'm, ready. I'm, I'm always ready. That's the good thing about me, as you point that, that's out. That's true. You, you are. Uh, I, I am always prepared, or if I'm not always prepared, I can. I, I, ex- I excel in just winging it. I, you know, I have to say that there's of all, of all our hosts, there's no question that the quickest kind of off the mark uh, is is definitely Jay. I, I've known that for years, but. So the, I, you are probably more ready than I am because I, of course, I was going to. We were going to do the show with Kristen, and when it's a Kristen and Mike show, Kristen does the story intro. So this will have a little more of a. I always say to, to Kimberly, I feel like I teach my classes like I'm like a like a bad jazz player, like sort of an improv, but not necessarily uh, a Sonny Rollins or or you know Miles Davis. So, but we'll we'll do our best here. You know, yeah, I, I am. I, on the other hand, I am. I am the John Coltrane of uh, podcasting. I think. I, again, no, I can... no question. I mean, that, that's a good analogy because you know Coltrane would sometimes go off on these things and say, "Well, what what exactly is going on?" But eventually, where's he going? Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, get it at the end. <laughs> All right, but but we will we will muddle through certainly. And uh, like I said our top story this week is the Supreme Court abortion ruling uh, uh, and we're a divided court five to four with chief justice roberts joining the minority uh refusing to grant a stay on the texas heartbeat uh, i think it's called the heartbeat bill which is sort of a misnomer some would say because at at that point there's not actually a heartbeat per se but everyone gets the idea and in any case I think we all probably are vaguely aware of the basics of this, and that is after six weeks, well, Dan's abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, and that's around six weeks or so. And there are no, there's no exception in this law for rape or incest, though there is a medical emergency exception. And the the interesting thing about this law is the enforcement mechanism, because normally when abortion restrictions are passed, the state actually is the one that enforces them. But in this case, in a unique twist, Texas designed the law so that not the state, but private individuals bring suit under this law. They can sue abortion providers or anyone who assists a person in obtaining an abortion. And 
would get a, if successful, get a minimum of a $10,000 award. And I believe that's also plus costs. Although, yeah, yeah, although there is an exception, if you are a man who impregnates a woman through rape or incest, you cannot bring suit. And so uh, the the plaintiff makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but (laughs) you you can find somebody who would do it anyway, but uh, the plaintiffs brought are suing actually who's being sued here. If the state doesn't have uh, the authority to enforce this law, then who exactly is responsible? Well, that's the tricky part of this law, right? So the plaintiffs are suing a Texas state judge, a guy named Austin Reeve Jackson, who as a judge would be in a position to to actually process these potential abortion-related lawsuits. And in the decision, the, uh, the court's, might, the court's uh, five real conservatives, as opposed to Chief Justice Roberts, who I think a lot of people on the right feel is squishy, basically suggested that because of the novel nature of this claim or of this, this uh, statutory construction, I guess you could say, that they didn't want to jump in and rule on this and kind of wanted to wait until lower courts could carefully analyze the facts and what's going on here. And uh, the uh, my, four in the minority uh, basically said, well, three in the minority, the, th- the court's three liberals said, you guys are nuts. This is a blatantly unconstitutional law. It prohibits essentially abortions after six weeks when our our a long line of precedents say around fetal viability, which is 22, 24 weeks. And so uh, you have your heads in the sand, as, as I believe Justice Sotomayor said. Then there was Justice Roberts, who joined with them in dissent, but basically just said, well, you know, this is a new and no- this is a novel issue. And so I would just want to keep things the way they are until this uh, uh, until we can kind of sort these out. And so I think that's more or less an accurate uh, description of the uh, the opinions. Jay, well, what was your take on this? Did the majority get it right that's here? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I think something that's important to, to point out, uh, there was, there's been all this sort of apocalyptic uh, rhetoric in, in, you know, that you've seen just social media and so forth, that this is, this is the end of Roe versus Wade. This is uh, yeah, this, uh, you just, the horror, you know, the, the court is uh, totally illegitimate. We need to pack the court, so forth. Um, this is a procedural ruling, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. This is a weird, uh, a weird statute, uh, and I, I'm not familiar. I can't think of any parallel uh, with with this other than um, I'm thinking back to like ancient Roman law, right, Mike? When you get, when they when they didn't like somebody, uh, they would put them on a prescription list. Which you know, Rome didn't actually have its own police force. So, mm-hmm. so what happened was you you put somebody on the list of prescribed people, and uh, you could just kill them. Yeah. So, so it's it's sort of you know the emperor put you on the list. If there was somebody who was kind of had it in for you anyway, uh, they could go out and kill you, and and uh, uh, Rome would say, hey, thanks for for taking care of that for us. Um, so it's 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 a little weird like that where it turns over uh, what what ought to be a, um, a police function to private entities and not even not even like regular, uh, uh, you know, a, an established sort of private entity, but Anyone, just, just sort of any anybody. One of our listeners uh, on Discord said it basically lo- basically allows any citizen in Texas or anywhere else to be like their own private abortion Batman, just kind of going around. Exactly. And, that's just, yeah, <laughs> kind of scary. I you like know? that phrase, though, abortion I, Batman. I thought you'd like that, um, yeah. Um, so the, so, so my sense is this, this is really, uh, novel and I, I think it's, it, there are a whole lot of problems. So I mean, yeah, the obvious constitutional problem is banning abortion after six weeks. That's certainly not in keeping with current precedent. Uh, could current precedent change? Uh, of course, but uh, that's going to, that's going to take place in a more ordered, uh, briefed discussion uh back and forth and and looking at precedents and so forth so um but the other thing i think that that the majority very much got right is uh who exactly are, is being sued and 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 what is being sought to enjoin one of the biggest principles of the judiciary is it only decides cases and controversies uh, it doesn't issue advisory opinions so, you know, you can have a law that says that it really, really looks like it's unconstitutional and and certainly based on on uh, current constitutional law, this one looks that way. 
but the Supreme Court's job isn't just to weigh in and, and you know give an opinion and say, man, this looks bad. We're not going to let it take effect. Their job is when there's an actual case or controversy uh, to wade in and say this, you know, decide that dispute between the parties in that controversy. And I think there's a, a, a really good question about who are the right parties here. I mean, for example, if you just enjoin a judge from uh, hearing certain cases, even if they haven't been brought, again, that strikes me as being uh, sort of wading wading into the advisory opinion piece. And that's no matter what your feelings on on abortion are, I, I think that's a bad place to go. Um, when you start getting into a, a situation where courts can just say, "Hey, here's what we think." Um, the law is, it sort of wanders into, here's what we think the law ought to be. Uh, and at that point, they're sort of surrendering the judicial function for the legislative function, uh, which uh, I think is a bad thing. So so all that all that said, um, you know, I think the majority gets it right on a procedural point. And, and I think the, one of the first lines, maybe the second line, is uh, there looks to be big constitutional problems here. Uh, so it's, it's not as if um, the majority is, is somehow saying, uh, yeah, this looks like it's okay. Uh, I, I do think that there's the procedural issue, and and all, also more important when you're dealing with something this big is is to make sure you've got the procedural eyes dotted and t's crossed, uh, right? So that you're not saying, hey, here is again. I think that goes to legitimacy of the court that you don't want a court just wading into something, particularly where it's a a a big political issue. Uh, when there are are good jurisprudential reasons to stay out of it, and, and there's also I think plenty of remedies that that uh, plaintiffs could have uh, to to block the law outside of the U.S. Supreme Court at this point. It it seems, and and I I think those are some important arguments, especially the the court uh, the majority writing. Well, what exactly are we enjoining here? Uh, we don't enjoin laws; we enjoin uh, individuals from carrying yeah. out laws, and so we have nothing to enjoin here. Um, and that to me was the strongest part of the majority's argument. It's kind of central to it. But then I thought about, and Jay, you'll be able to comment on this. That sort of the general standards for when you issue an emergency injunction and uh, the the two big things that come out that, that that are always the case are the probability of succeeding on the merits uh, and also yep. some sort of irreparable injury if this law, this thing is allowed to go into an effect. And it seems to me here that this is where the plaintiffs make a pretty strong case that both of those things stand under current constitutional law. There is a high probability of the of them the succeeding on the merits. And also, given the fact this could prevent women from obtaining uh, obtaining abortions, then there would be an irreparable injury if the law is allowed to go into effect. So it seems to me that that's a strong argument as well. I think I think the likelihood of success on the merits is is uh, stronger. Um, I, I would say almost overwhelming. And, and there, there's a, certainly a body of case law, and they recognize this injunction is that look, when you've got a a you know like a hundred percent likelihood of success on the merits. Your your need to show irreparable harm sort of decreases proportionally. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a good argument. But to me, the the bigger point is the uh, the who do you enjoin the the ripeness uh, piece of it, and that's that to me is 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 the issue. And, and I think you know, look, if the way to the way to solve this is uh, if someone goes for an abortion, they can't get one, and and uh, the reason, well, this this person's afraid of, of getting sued or actually is sued. Um, and that's the uh, point is who do you sue then? I mean, at that point you've got a, somebody, somebody follows the suit, you've got a ripe case and uh, there you go. But that's the devilishly clever thing about this law, right? Because even, even in that case, some, and there have been reports that people are being, you know, turned away from Planned Parenthood offices in Texas and saying, well, uh, there's not actually a lawsuit, but we want to avoid a lawsuit, and so there's there's actually there's no live case or controversy, right? There's just somebody who is suffering uh, uh, the, the consequences of that, and that to me that to me is at the heart of why Chief Justice Roberts is is in the dissent here, because his the tone, what he is saying, his dissent is very different from the three liberals, and my my take on this is that 
Chief Justice realized that the Texas legislature designed a, a piece of trickery to get around the court. And uh, so he just decided, you know what, I'm, I don't think that's I'm not going to go for that. And so let's just keep things as they are before we can unravel this clearly bogus piece of legal reasoning. And the majority just decided that, no, they they, they weren't going to they were going to be ruled because uh, as many of us on the left feel like they they wanted to be ruled. They were eager to be ruled on this. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, so, on the right, but, but sorry. My, my take on, on the, the, the ripeness piece of it, though, uh, is all you need is, um, if, if it's Planned Parenthood or, or whoever, um, somebody, and I, I don't want to encourage this, but look, this is what they do all the time, every day, uh, perform an abortion and, and stake the, the 10, 10 grand, right? Um, that's that's, yeah, that's uh, pocket change. Uh, for, for for a big national you know organization, or say, listen, we'll we'll indemnify uh, any doctor who performs an abortion uh, under these under these circumstances, and uh, then let somebody sue, and then you've got your case, and uh, we're off to the races, and and that's something that, that could could take place in in short order. And as as I said, it, clearly, I think a, a, any federal district court uh, would be compelled to. To follow what what is the current uh, precedent and uh, and grant that injunction, or there's also state court remedies, which the court pointed yeah. out there too that there could be ways to handle this in state court. And the the, the other piece, and I'll, I'll admit that I haven't done any really reading or study on this, but the the whole idea of of deputizing uh, citizens to essentially conduct a, a you know police you know, police type uh, uh, purpose. Yeah, I think there's I think there are issues there. And again, I haven't dug deep enough into it. Um, there's also there's a, there's a weird, you know, in, in the law, when you have something that is a criminal law and you say, well, uh, here, if you violate this, there are criminal sanctions. In that case, uh, courts do say, yes, it's ripe right away because they don't expect someone to risk criminal penalty uh, for for violating the law, mm-hmm. uh, so as then, opposed to this, which is risking civil yeah, penalty, which is yeah. So then it sounds to me like what you're saying is how you see this playing out is that at some point in the very near future, some group will most likely perform an abortion in violation of this law and then be sued, and then uh, in fairly short order, because of the highly questionable nature of this, uh, some district judge will actually enjoin, enjoin the law once there's actually that sort of live live case. Yes. Okay, and that, yeah. that, that probably and shouldn't take to too me, long. To me, that sort of goes also to the irreparable harm piece that hasn't been shown yet, because, uh, look, someone... Uh, are, are, are there people who aren't performing abortions? Can one not be obtained uh, because of this law? Well, there's some evidence to suggest that, but it's also tough to make that case that uh, when when you file at midnight, the, when the law goes into effect, right, right, and, uh, and that goes if in- you file if you file it if you file the lawsuit two weeks later or something like that and say, listen, since this time. All these physicians have refused to provide abortions because they're afraid of the ten thousand dollar penalty. Your, I think your irreparable harm case is better. Mm, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And and you know, I should point out that one unique part of the law, which I called it a, at least I think I called it a bogus argument. That idea that the the law, some are saying the law can't be unconstitutional because this isn't a state action, but it's private action. But uh, there's a long line of of uh, judicial precedents, including the court's own precedents, yeah. that courts are state actors, and so even though the states not doing the enforcing directly, the mechanism of the courts uh, is being enforced that way. And so you can't kind of get around the Constitution by saying, oh, no, the state's not involved because the state is. It's like, yeah, it's like libel suits. Yeah. It's like New York Times Sullivan. Um, one other thing I do want to mention, um, and, and I'll, I'll admit that, again, because we're doing the show early and I am uh, haven't totally prepared and, and I'm not sure any degree of preparation uh, would have uh, would have made me ready for this. But the the Texas law also includes an affirmative defense that the prohibition of the abortion would create an undue burden uh, on on the woman, and I, I I'm sort of baffled as to how that works exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's that is highly right. I mean, I, I mean, in, in practice, right? I mean, I mean that's it, again, that's the that's sort of the test that that is applied uh, for other abortion restrictions um, uh, that. 
you yeah. know, Congress or, or, or states can can uh, place restrictions on abortion, suppose as long as there's no undue burden on the exercise of that right. Um, but I'm not sure how that works as as an affirmative defense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I think just generally speaking, the law was designed to sow chaos. And if you're if you're the attorney for uh, any one of these abortion providers, I think that the thing you would tell your client is, why don't you just hold off on abortions until we can kind of get this all, you know, settled, basically. And so that's, you know, it seems to be happening. And if you are uh, if you are an opponent of abortion, then any pause is a good thing and it's life saved yeah. and that, that sort of thing. And of course, if you are a proponent of reproductive rights, then any pause is a, a bad thing for, you know, exactly opposite reasons. And, you know, I go ahead. No, no my, my, my take is yeah, if I'm advising the abortion providers um, and that's not something I'd probably do, but uh, and again, the, my hesitancy in, in offering this this advice, but from a legal perspective, uh, is yeah, move forward. Uh, let somebody sue you. Let's tee it up and oh, and, and let's go. Very aggressive. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I I expect that will happen as well, and we'll be we'll be following that when it does. You know, if we kind of get more broadly, public opinion has for a long time now, for decades, really favored not overturning Roe versus Wade, and there was all this talk about will it be overturned? Well, I think we'll we'll know a lot more in the court's upcoming term when they're hearing that Mississippi case that has a fifteen it was a fifteen week. Uh, after 15 weeks, abortions are banned. But for the last few decades, over half of Americans, around 58 percent in a, in a recent survey, have been in favor of keeping Roe versus Wade. But majorities are also often in favor of various abortion restrictions, even ones that the court have ruled impose an undue burden. So a lot of the abortion positions really depends for a great deal of the public on sort of how questions are, are, are asked, how they're phrased in that sense. Yeah. yeah. And there's there's a sense of of uh, I imagine if you ask most people, if, if the beginning of the question is, do you think uh, blank should be overturned? Yeah. No, don't uh, overturn. In most cases, you're going to get a no. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, in terms of the ramifications for this, at least in the short term, I mean, certainly Texas women who who want to get an abortion at this point almost certainly will have to get it go out of state for it. Uh, and, and that's going to be that could be potentially significant because uh, I think the data is that something like 85 to 90 percent of women don't even necessarily know they're pregnant until after that six week period, which kind of makes sense. It's a very you know, short period. But I think also the political ramifications aside from I mean, my feeling is that you know Texas women not not able to exercise their constitutional right here until this is settled. But the political ramifications, other states, I think, are considering similar laws. In fact, I know they are that the president of Florida State Senate said they're working on one right now. Um, and, but, but I think that's a little maybe premature because I would expect a lot of states are just going to wait and see how this kind of plays out and maybe have something ready to go. Uh, but politically, I think this is certainly something that could energize uh, Texas Democrats and maybe even national Democrats in the midterms, depending on how this plays out. Well, what do you think, Jay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's um, again, as I so often lament, uh, can no one here play this game? Um, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you had sort of uh, Biden and Dem the Democrats uh, really on the ropes uh, the past couple of weeks. Um, months and uh and this is sort of giving them a gift uh, so you know that and i'm and again i'm i'm speaking in the purely machiavellian political sure. sense of it uh, well it just came up when it uh, came up but it was bad timing you're saying right right bad. right and and, and I, I understand that but um yeah that it's that was passed back in may and and you know you couldn't have foreseen uh everything that would happen but i, I think you could have uh, Republicans could have foreseen that. Look, this is going to look uh, dumb and goofy, and and for for what? You know what I mean? I guess I guess that's what what troubles me. Yeah. Uh, is is what's the what's the real benefit out of this? Because it it strikes me as this is this is not going to be the case that overturns Roe versus Wade. Yeah. No, it's just too, too in any, goofy in, in any your way, words. Yeah. way, shape, or form. That this is not this is not the constitutional challenge. This is not setting up. I see what you're legitimate yeah. constitutional challenge. And, and so basically, while while there's a short maybe a short term gain toward um, uh, Texas politicians and and to people who you know can 
and prevent abortions uh, in this sense. But the longer term, because of how it's structured and because it's pushing things, in your view, too far, it does maybe some longer term damage than a law uh, more like the Mississippi one, which would potentially be uh, a vehicle for the court to overturn Roe versus Wade. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if anything, you're making it you're making it harder. Right. For, I mean, it's for the court. Right. I mean, to uh, to, to do what what you're asking. Uh, because because you're making a law that is so extreme and so goofy and so riddled with these these other weird weird issues like the, the private enforcement uh, yeah. that uh, you know and on also I, I would you know very caution that the whole private enforcement uh, bit uh, uh, scares the hell out of me yeah uh, for for a whole lot of reasons um, well you're generally not a uh, fan of just the state telling people to kind of have at it with the with the lawsuits. I mean, that's not your not, not your thing, generally speaking. Well, well, I mean, I, I'm okay with the state actually saying people can have at it with with lawsuits to, to some extent if they're if those people are actually injured yeah. or something. For so, for example, I, I mean, saying, I know yeah. there there have been other statutes like um, uh, anti-abortion statutes that say, well, if you are the uh, uh, the, the father. Of, of the aborted uh, child, uh, could you bring a wrongful death suit? Yeah, uh, against the abortion provider, um, or or you know you were going to be the grandmother. So I mean something like that. Where where again, there's some there's there's a link there. Right. Normally uh, people least. wouldn't have standing, but this this legislation gives them standing, and that's that's the part you object to. Exactly, yeah. it, it sort of creates this nation of Karens, right? Yeah, that, that are just can just sort of. Uh, and, and there's very much fear of, of look, well, if, um, if my, if my car doesn't have the right emission control or, or something like that, uh, can anyone just sue me, uh, for, for violating, uh, yeah, environmental laws. And from the state's uh, perspective, if, that can be very convenient because it outsources, yes. it outsources surveillance and all that, which is, which yeah, is the scary exactly. part of it. And that's, yeah. that's, yeah, that's exactly what, what terrifies me and why I think it's, that that sets a bad precedent. Um, it's a deeply unconservative so. thing in that sense, you would say, or yes. deeply unfreedom sort of thing, I guess you would say. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, you know, let's take a quick break and we will be back to talk about taxes. But in this case, it's a voting law. All right, Jay. So as you know, Texas recently uh, passed and the governor signed, Governor Abbott signed into law a Pretty important voting law, at least a lot of, well, I think people on both the left and the right would say it's been talked about for a while. And of course, as many people know, Democrats in the Texas state legislature staged uh, several walkouts to try to, at least they knew they couldn't stop it, but it, ideally to delay this legislation from going into effect. And eventually, though, it did. And I thought we would kind of start by talking about what this law is. Of course, uh, as as you would expect, many on the left are saying that it is, uh, you know, Jim Crowish and makes uh, makes it a lot harder to vote. And certainly when you look at states in terms of how difficult they are to vote in Texas, in fact, is at the top of this list, actually number 50 out of 50. So you might say if you're a conservative, that means it's the most. Uh, most secure, I, I guess, certainly. But uh, but in any case, they made it even tougher. And uh, so I thought what we do was kind of take a look at some of these provisions in this law right. and see, well, how how good, how bad is this? How much? Concern? How tough? It, well, when you say made it tougher, yeah. Well, I think we'll yeah. So we, we also we can start with sort of the baseline of of how tough is it the vote period, but go ahead. Yeah, I see what you say. I'm sure we'll get into that because we generally do with these discussions. But, you know, one of the things, one of the highlight items is a ban on drive-through voting, which was particularly a big thing in Harris County, which is the Houston area. A lot of people there, a lot of Democrats. In fact, one out of every 10, around one of every 10 voters in Harris County use that option in 2020. And so that's one of the big things that it does. And nope, no more drive through voting. And honestly, I don't really get why the state would step in and prevent drive through voting. Jay, do you have any thoughts on how this makes elections more secure? Yeah, because uh, when you depends on who's in the car with you, right? Uh, typically, when you vote, you are alone in, in your voting booth, or uh, presumably you're alone filling out your absentee ballot. Um, there's, there's, to me, a little bit of a, a problem of uh, you go and you pick somebody up and you take them and say, "Hey, we're going to go vote." Um, does does that person um, 
you know, would, would, let's put it this way: you wouldn't you wouldn't allow someone to stand next to you uh, in the actual voting booth while you fill out your ballot. Yet uh, the idea is that you can have someone in your car while you do that. Um, that troubles me a little bit, especially when you when you think about. Well, look, you can have a you know Dropbox mail mail drops. Uh, you could fill out your absentee ballot at home and drive through and drop it in the mailbox. Uh, that's fine, and but but this is a little different. Uh, see, I guess that's uh, what I, I don't understand because this seems to me to be more secure because in in the drive through locations, how it works, voters had to show a, you know a, a regular photo ID. They had to have their registration to vote verified, and so I mean, it, it seems to me that this is actually you could argue more secure in a sense or more resistant to outside influence than say uh, mail mail in voting absentee voting uh, there there's no evidence of you know widespread issues with this and so it seems to me if counties want to do this it's not an election security issue it's just making voting less convenient for no good reason because i understand your objections which you've made many times about Nothing good happens at three in the morning, drop boxes kind of thing. You know, okay, I could see where you'd say and it doesn't. Yeah, but we don't want to have this sort of box underneath this, by the next to this dumpster with you know, no, with who knows what could happen. I get that. I think that's reasonable. But just saying that, well, if a, if a county wants to spend the resources, has the resources to basically allow the, the drive-through version of voting, I, to me, that's just that's just putting up an obstacle for no good reason. Um, look again, I. If if you're asking me, is is the drive-through voting a major threat to security? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, is it less secure than actually voting in person? Yeah. Uh, as you point out, it may be even more secure than voting absentee. Uh, but I guess I guess I still don't see it as uh, this is somehow Jim Crow on steroids. Sure, and I'm I, just I don't, saying. Yeah. And again, keep in mind that. Um, most states, uh, like say Delaware, uh, don't offer uh, drive-through voting. Have never offered drive-through voting, and this was something that kind of was a, a creature of the pandemic. And you had sort of an, an exceptional year last year because of all these these uh, uh, steps that had to be taken to allow people to vote uh, because you you couldn't do in-person voting. Uh, and and all of a sudden, if you don't adopt all of those everything that was was taken in last year it's it's jim crow and i think that's something i push back about there's there's good reasons why we didn't have this before uh and and i you know my my security the security point is, is just one of them um but uh well, you know yeah, i i mean the, I, go ahead I, i'm i'm so look, i understand say, does that make it marginally more difficult i suppose um but I understand. I mean, it, it makes it. And let me let me kind of try to contextualize this. It seems to me the argument that from from the right, or at least a reasonable argument from the light right, and I will I will put you in that camp, is that uh, essentially uh, 2020 was different. We all know that, and so going removing special provisions that were put in place, or because we are under pandemic conditions, removing those is not rolling back voter rights because those exemptions, exceptions, procedures that were designed were always going to be temporary. We were trading off uh, a bit more access in a difficult time. And with the understanding, at least on the right, that it would make elections less secure. And that was okay to do given the extraordinary nature of what we were going through. But it's not okay to keep on doing that. Is that more or exactly. less? Exactly. Couldn't okay. have said it better myself. Yes. And of course, the position on the left is we should have been doing this stuff anyway. And so the fact that we actually give people these these uh, make it easier for people to vote pandemic or not, when we roll back that pandemic or not, that's 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 a move in the wrong direction. And I'm sure you can understand that logic as well. I, I guess I understand the, the logic, uh, but I, I, again, disagree with the premise and the way that it's it's being stated. Right. I mean, the. You don't have the legis the half your legislature uh, depart um, for for out of state to avoid voting on a law because you know you're trying to make the point that well this is slightly less con you know voting will be slightly less convenient than it was last year. Well, I mean right? it, that's it, not how this was built. This this was built as this is this is Jim Crow. This is the worst thing since um, uh, you know Selma. This and, and all this this absolute nonsense. 
Um, well, let me say, I want to break this in two parts, because I think you're right, that there's absolutely, when you look at what Jim Crow laws really were, this is not that. There's no question in my mind, and the, but there's always that hyperbole. But arguing, I would argue that uh, the fact that the Democrats walked out and tried to prevent this for as long as possible, I think that's totally warranted, because on the left, I think generally speaking, we don't see this as making voting slightly more uh, difficult. We see this as a move toward, well, less less democracy and making it specifically more difficult for groups that are that have the hardest time voting, that are the most disadvantaged. And so that sets off a pretty big red flag on the left. And that's why you see this strong reaction. Why? Why does it? uh, Again, someone uh, once wrote into our Facebook page about is is there is there a problem on the Democrat side if they look at this um, honestly? of uh, infantilizing um, uh, some Democratic voters. That, I mean, that's, again, I, we, we get back to that. I mean, I, I yeah, it's, all the time. I mean, and it's regular and I, you always say, well, look, for me as a suburban, uh, 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 uber-wealthy, uber-educated uh, white guy, uh, voting's really easy. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I, again, I, I don't think it's, I just don't think it's that hard, uh, given, you know, all, all the various ways we, we can do it. Even in Texas, yeah, right? and I think um, there's the there's and, a, and, and you can we can, we can move on to other provisions, but as as you you I'm sure you'll point out that the Texas law actually expands voting access in a number of in Republican areas. counties. Yeah, <laughs> funny how that funny how that works. Well, it, it 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 most of the restrictions are going to affect largely Democratic areas, and the expansion will affect largely Republican areas. And uh, I don't think that was exactly coincidental, uh, certainly. But yeah, that well, provision well, you're well, talking well, about. Well, I said it expands. Well, no, I'm talking about uh, ideas, for example, of um, expanding um, in-person voting. Yeah, I know exactly, and that, but right. but that's based on county size, and so essentially, the larger counties, the the Democratic leaning counties, were already doing this, and it's just an instruction, essentially, to the Republican, the smaller Republican counties, to say, hey, you have to you have to hold voting open for longer, and so to me, it, it was sort of a. Uh, Blatantly, it's sort of a blatantly partisan thing uh, on on the part of the legislature. Or at it's, least, it's part, well, how's how's it partisan to say, look, Republican counties, uh, you play by the same rules as as the Democrat counties. No, have yeah, been yeah, for, and that you're you're right. Let, let me let me uh, let me retract and restate. I guess to say that it has a happy, it has a happily partisan advantage. How about that? I, I mean, I suppose again, my my sense is, uh, and I think the. The numbers bear this out. Most Republicans still vote in person on Election Day. Uh, More than as, Democrats, as opposed to, yeah. You know, that. But, but you know, look, I, I just think, look, if you want to have um, statewide rules that, that apply statewide and they're uniform. Yeah. Um, and again, in, in this case, as, as you point out, the Democrat counties were, were already doing this. Uh, no, and but, I, yeah, the expanded hours. I mean, uh, one of the other pieces of the expanded hours were like, well, when can they expand it? Are, are the weekends and so forth? Uh, I, I, this voting law is much more generous than many states uh, in terms. I think it's more generous than Ohio's, uh, even than uh, in terms of like weekend yeah. voting and and so forth. Uh, well, let me. It's not not as generous as like as far back as you can go, but I think in Ohio you still have to, still has to be weekdays business hours. Yeah. Well, let me let me run a provision by you that makes even less sense to me than the ban on drive through voting. And that's the ban on 24 hour early voting, which was offered at a few locations in the state in 2020, Harris County being, I think, that epicenter of that. Now, so there's a the law sets a window of 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. And, and on this, given the fact that given I, I understand, Jay, nothing good happens at 3 a.m. But right. if if a county wants to use its resources to have personnel at a location that that literally then would be not a single difference between whether it's 9:30 or 1 9:30 p.m. or 1 a.m. so why tell the why tell a county that they can't do that there there can be no voter security issue involved there it just would be a a matter of administrative cost and convenience and if counties want to do that uh what's the who's the state to say uh don't do that why would they do that Again, I'll, I'll go back to my nothing hap- nothing good happens at, at you know three a.m. Uh, argument. But why, right? I mean, why, why not? I, I mean, why would the state what, step just, in with its boot on is, the foot of the it, county? Is it your position that there's this great mass of, of Democratic voters out there 
who have been trying to get to the polls all the time, but but you know they they no uh, you're missing my point. They it's just my, can't get there till three in the morning. It's my position that uh, if if local government uh, that it's my position of one of subsidiarity. You know that if local government can handle this problem, why would the state? Why would states step in to prevent this? There's no harm that is being done. I understand your your argument, but it's not really an argument for doing this. In fact, it seems to me to be a deeply untraditional conservative argument saying the state's just going to ban this because it feels like it and with no with no good reason except for nothing good happens at 3 a.m. That's not a that's not a reason. That's a that's a quip. Well, oh, but it, oh, it's, a, it's a good quip. Though. It is a good quip. Um, I'll grant you that. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, if you're talking about staffing and who you're going to have there and how how efficient are um, these these places in operating um, polling places, right? I mean, when when you have issues of, uh, uh, you know, oh, my gosh, there's problems at the polls, there's confusion at the polls. And, and keep in mind, most poll workers uh, on Election Day are, are volunteers. Yeah. Uh, they well, are, the graveyard shift, right? The three a.m. shift. That would be rough. But if they—that's my point—is <laughs> if if you know you um, really you really piss I'm, someone I'm, off, I'm you, you're working from I'm three. Perhaps questioning the quality of volunteer you get for the three a.m. shift. Yeah, but that's uh, uh, that's I mean, as well even, as the quality of, of employee you get for the three a.m. shift. But even you understand uh, that this is, is that, a weak is argument. There, is there perhaps a a, uh, a motivation? Um, uh, by by some local governments uh, to to perhaps let let things slide a little bit. Uh, oh, that's in the, pretty weak. Uh, after hours, right? Uh, I know and, you're doing your best more, here, Jay. But you're floundering on this one. <laughs> I, I I guess you're you're trying to make I understand the best argument for for your client here, the state of Texas. But that's this is that's, you're on pretty rough rough ground with this one. I think let's move on. Uh, no, I think I think this goes to just a general uh, look. I'll I'll ask people of of. Um, uh, just the a general sense of um who would <laughs> who do you want choosing uh your representative the people who voted at um 7 a.m or the people who voted at three or four I, and in the in the the very the sparsely but i it just it just seems i mean look i this is it just strikes me as as uh sketchy and I, i'm not sure why uh, Democrats are so insistent that they need this, right? When you've got something like, look, if if you really want to vote at three or four in the morning, you can fill out your uh, absentee ballot then and and drop it off at the mailbox. Uh, it it just it just strikes me as an invitation to to mischief. Well, wouldn't I mean voting after dark? That's an invitation to mischief. Why don't we make it and and early that early in the morning, six a.m. People aren't being people aren't. Why don't we say nine to five? That would be that would be even better, right? Because we're in those those hours of the day when only good, decent people can vote. I mean that that's how no, that's how this sounds. Would, no, 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 no. You you would agree to? Yeah, I think you you would understand, and everyone would understand. Uh, there is a difference between seven o'clock at night and three in the morning. Well, for people with, who with work, you know, people who work and, a double shift or second shift, and, I mean, those are the sort of people that those are the sort of people that would, you know, would benefit from this. And I don't think they're inherently sketchier or worse or anything than, than somebody who happens to be able to vote it at noon. So from you between between seven and three or. No, I'm saying I'm saying, that, yeah, I, I don't think that there's anything inherently sketchier about somebody who might, for various work or family reasons, end up having to, you know, get off work at, say, at, at, at 5 a.m. And, and go and vote then. I don't I don't think there's any reason to think that that person is any sketchier or less entitled to to uh, access to the polls than 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 you or I. All right. It's, it, again, it, it strikes me that this is. You know, you're and, and you're making the argument, obviously, on behalf of the, the Texas Democrats, that this this is something that is is desperately needed. No, no, um, I'm not saying it's desperately needed. I I, I don't oh, think it was, it was made, so. I no, mean, let it was me so be clear. That, let me be clear. Be, the Democrats are willing to decamp from Texas and go hide out in order to. Uh, well, it's not one provision, Jay. It's weeks. the entirety of the legislation. They didn't walk out for one provision. It was the entirety of the right. legislation. So I'm not saying that it's desperately needed. I think it'll have a very small marginal effect, but it's the the point of making it more difficult for what I believe is no good reason and targeting a certain class of voters that I, I'm not I'm not okay with that. 
Okay. Anyway, why don't why don't we move on? You so, like you like the night owl, night owl voters. There you go. Yeah, night absolutely. owls for Baranowski. Yeah, absolutely. So it also makes it a felony for local election officials to send unsolicited applications to request a mail-in ballot, or for them to use public funds to support groups that provide mail-in ballot applications. And again, this is one of these provisions that I don't see as being an election security issue because if local officials officials have the funds and they want to send out unsolicited applications, that's not a so people people are free to say, "Oh, uh, I don't want to I want to vote in person," but it gives them that option. It has nothing to do with the process. Again, it seems to me that this is much more a case of the state just wanting to make it more difficult and preventing local officials who are closer to people and should know more what their constituencies want. That should sound like a familiar conservative argument that uh, preventing them from doing that. And I think that's just wrong. I I would agree that that one um, has me a little baffled. Okay. Just just because uh, I, I know, for example, Ohio, I think, sends everybody. I mean, this is the Secretary of State literally sends uh, everyone a, a uh, application. Um, uh, and there's also always, there's always sort of the, the game of what's called ballot chasing, uh, right? Where you uh, check the, the, um, uh, the registrations, then you send them the um, right. uh, request form and so forth. And, and of course, I don't have, I don't have an issue with sending um, absentee ballot solicitation requests. Uh, I, I do have an issue with sending ballots. ballots. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's reason. Yeah. I, I, I can understand that issue, certainly. But this, well, I, I'm glad that you at least find this this provision a bit a, a bit troubling. There's also... Now, again, I, well, do I find it troubling? I don't know if I find it troubling. Um, puzzling. But, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't I, think I, it's... To me, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily uh, see what's gained there. I do, I do see what's gained in, in the partisan, drive-through yeah. or the 3 a.m. stuff. This one... Well, you see what's, I mean, you don't see what's gained here from maybe a public good sense, but you, but you see what's gained from a partisan sense. Eh, Not even that. So you're saying, well, hold on one second. I mean, you're saying that there is this provision that these legislators talked about and decided to put in this bill that as far as you can tell has no purpose, that they, they put it in there for no reason you can figure out. Come on, well, I mean, come on, Jamie. I understand your no, no, no. They obviously think there's a purpose. They I, obviously think that this will this will help. Okay. Uh, they're they're concerned that bigger Democratic counties okay. will okay. have these resources and that they will put these out and you will get more, uh, uh, more absentee ballots in. I I'm just I'm just think it's the premise is sort of dubious that okay. makes a difference. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that you understood what their premise was. All right. Yeah. All right. I understand what they're they're after. I just I just don't know that it works. Okay. Now, there's also in this a new ID requirement for voting by mail. Uh, applicants have to put in their driver's license number, or if they don't have one, the last four digits of their social security number on mail and their ballot applications. And this is one of these things that I thought, eh, that seems reasonable to me. I'm, I'm not, as I talked about before, I'm not necessarily against uh, reasonable ID requirements. I do, I, I do, I would prefer some sort of a, a free ID to people who can't afford the cost of a state-issued ID. I mean, it's not it's not a huge expense necessarily. Texas charges a check $16 for a state ID card or, or $6 for people 60 and older. A driver's license costs $33. So not huge money, but I would like to see that. Uh, I would like to see that barrier a little bit lower for the poorest of the poor. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I think, look, Social Security number, uh, your last four digits, that that's uh, free. Yeah. Uh, so I. Yeah, that yeah, to me, I, that, that to me seems like a yeah, reasonable sort of thing. There's another thing I actually liked about the uh, about the law as well, is that a new process to allow voters to correct mail-in ballots that would otherwise be rejected for various technical errors. Apparently, voters will be able to make corrections online through some sort of a ballot tracking uh, system that was previously approved by the legislature. And the same thing goes for technical errors in the actual ballot application. And there was actually some uh, bipartisan agreement on this. I think Democrats really pushed for this and Republicans said, OK, essentially. And I think we would all agree that it's if people are just making technical errors and that can be fixed, then that should be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Um, there was, I, 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 but I would point out that having provisions like that 
makes it harder to square with the Jim Crow narrative. Right. And and again, you and I agree on that. This is not Jim Crow 2.0. It makes it harder to vote. And how big of a problem is that in balancing that against alleged security issues? I mean, that's kind of where the left and the right differ on these things. So, yeah, I I agree with you. This is not, you know, uh, Bull Connor in, in the 1950s or something like that. But I still don't think it's okay. Anyway. There are also these enhanced poll watcher protections. They're granted free movement within a polling place, but it also requires that poll watchers be trained and allows them to be removed from a polling place without warning if they violate the state penal code, which sounds like a good idea to me. Um, you ought to, yeah, if you violate the state penal code, you, you ought to be yep. removed anywhere. There you go. And poll watchers also will have to swear an oath that they will not disrupt voting or harass voters. And, you know, I there has been a lot been made about <laughs> these whole yeah, poll watcher harass come on man <laughs> oh, yeah yeah i mean I, this is the case where i think this is a reasonable this is a reasonable measure uh to enhance the feeling of transparency and and legitimacy and so i'm okay with that i know some on the left have a feel this is going to be like a poll watchers gone wild sort of thing i don't think so i think this is this is the sort of provision i could i would be able to support certainly so i think this is okay and again poll i I don't know what texas law was like before this but but certainly most states have some sort of poll watcher system where you do go through some sort of registration process and you go through some sort of training and you're you're signed up and you're you're credentialed and and if you if you do something you're not supposed to do they'll 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 boot you uh And I think those poll watchers, again, they're volunteer and they they serve an important purpose in uh, keeping everybody honest. And I, I I think I'm I'm all for that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, this is just adding that credentialing process to Texas. I think yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think so long as, like you said, there's that there's that process and that they're not they don't have being agents of intimidation. I'm OK with that, too. Um, There are also new rules for voter assistance in the law. Anyone who helps voters who need assistance filling out their ballot must swear an oath that they didn't pressure or, or coerce the voter into choosing them for assistance and that their assistance was limited to reading the ballot to the voter, directing the voter to read the ballot, marking the voter's ballot, or directing the voter to mark the ballot. And I read that, and I thought, well, that sounds that sounds okay with me. I don't have a problem with that at all, and I expect you don't either. Nope. So when I look at this in whole, and those are the main provisions. There, uh, there's, well, it's like some stuff like that is is things like I, I'm, I sort of like, wait, that wasn't in the law already? Yeah. And that's... Yeah. You would think it would be. So it seems to me that on the whole, this, as I said, Texas is uh, the most by political science uh, analysis, various methodologies. Texas is the most difficult to vote in state. And this, to me, makes it marginally more difficult to vote in Texas. Though I will say that it makes it it's it will be in 2022 less difficult to vote in Texas. I believe than it was in 2018. Yeah, I, I think that's. I yes. think that's. I think that's yeah. the case. But you know, well, that's progress. Well, and, and you know, it's not surprising when you look at the most difficult to vote in states: Texas, Georgia, Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, and then the five least difficult to vote in states: Oregon, Washington, Utah, maybe an outlier there, Illinois, and Maryland. That kind of what you would expect, and. You know, we've talked about this a lot before, Jay, these voting, various voting restrictions in states. And Texas is now the 18th state since the election that's tightened election rules. And again, I, I understand the argument, the logic on the right saying, well, there's public concern about legitimacy of elections. And so we're going to tighten up the laws. But of course, on the left, people are saying, well, who was stoking this public concern out of out of nothing when state officials say these elections were clean? Well, you were. And so this is clearly a way to suppress the vote. And I think there is absolutely truth to that. Well, but I, I would say you're also some of this when we say tighten the rules, there is this sense of, well, we're, we're rolling back the clock to 2019, right? A lot of these these rules are essentially getting rid of uh, uh, pandemic specific procedures and and procedures that were put in place because of the pandemic and and simply stopping those from becoming permanent and the new normal, because I I think there are issues there um, uh, with with uh, trust, whether or not. Uh, they they manifested themselves in the actual results this time. I think there's still vulnerabilities and and those vulnerabilities uh, you ought to take a look at. So, 
So, you know, we have, we have a few minutes left. We kind of working on a hard deadline for, for this show. Jay, as I said, uh, was, was willing to jump in, but he had to move around a lot on his schedule. But, Jay, you know, you and I have already talked about Afghanistan, and uh, I don't think a whole lot has changed since our last conversation, except for the fact that, of course, the last, uh, the, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan this past week, and President Biden addressed the country uh, on this issue, kind of making the case, uh, making the argument that this was an incredibly difficult maneuver. Anytime you uh, try to plan an orderly withdrawal in the face of the enemy, that's, that's one of the most difficult militarily things you can do. And it was a huge success in the sense of how many people were airlifted out in such a short period, certainly. And uh, now there are apparently between one and 200 Americans, some of whom may want to stay because they have ties to ties to the country, their dual citizenship or uh, but the president did vow that every one of those Americans who wants to get out, we will find a way to get you out. So I guess my question for you is because not a lot has changed. Uh, I don't think since our last conversation, are you feeling more or less confident about that sort of hostage situation thing we talked about a few weeks ago? Um, it depends how you mean more, it, more it, confident that there more confident that there is going to be a hostage situation. Yes. Oh, really? So you, you think that yeah. the Taliban will in fact leverage, uh, the U.S. Well, I, I think they already have, right? I mean, if, if you have people of your own your own country uh, who want to get out, um, but if the idea is like, well, we'll negotiate to get them out. Well, then, then what you got is hostages. Right? Yeah, but do we I mean, know if, that that's if happening? Wants, right if someone, now. if there's an American citizen living in France and decides, hey, I want to head back home, uh, you don't have to negotiate with anyone for them to come back home. Yeah, I don't know that that's... I would say even if there's an American citizen living in China or living in Iran, you don't have to negotiate with someone for them to come back home. If you got to negotiate uh, for them to leave the country, uh, you got a hostage situation. And so you're saying that you think that this is happening at present, just not the sort of thing that's being publicly reported. Well, it's it's a different uh, type dynamic than you know, say they've everyone's holed up at the embassy, uh, you know, with blindfolds on. Yeah. Uh, but if you have a situation where where people can't leave, um, then 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 yes, they are they're essentially being held hostage. I mean, I, I point out so for example the uh, the the girls uh, from California uh, who who uh, went over to to visit family yeah. it's uh, something about a dozen or so um again they're they're u.s citizens uh and uh they are they are not able to leave um the other uh, uh gentleman who's who's been literally held hostage who was a contractor for for some time the taliban still hasn't given him up uh i mean this this tells you who they are uh, so there may be people of of look they're not being they're not uh, handcuffed to a radiator or something uh right. but they still can't can't leave. Yeah. And and, and certainly there, there are more important. than zero Americans. But, you know, there, there yeah. are I think the President Biden's point was, at least my reading into it, is that was always going to be the case, just given the nature of any sort of withdrawal. And that is an issue separate from that. That's a that is a function of withdrawing in general, no matter no matter how we would have planned it. He, had, uh, he mentioned that, you know, as early as March, they'd been reaching out to Americans in Afghanistan, letting them know. I think he said something like 19 times communications were, were, were sent out. And so this was going to happen. Well, it's, it's one, 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 let me finish. This was going to happen. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that this was going to happen with any sort of withdrawal. And there was no way to avoid some Right. Well, well, then in, in that case, the, the, the problem is um, when he makes statements saying, look, I don't think the Taliban's certainly not going to take over. That's very unlikely uh, that they would be running ever anything. Um, I see what you're saying. And, yeah. and, and, and then also just a week ago uh, before this uh, saying we will not leave. Our troops will not leave until every American is out. Um, that's that's blatantly and he and look if, if his position now as well this is always going to happen and this is just the way things are um that was was certainly untruthful uh at, at the time well and and uh you know 
both of I think we both agreed that this was handled. This was handled poorly. And I'm a bit skeptical about President Biden's uh, defense as well. But on that note, we have reached that hard deadline. Yes. Jay's. And so, Jay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we will be back a little bit later on with the bonus show. Absolutely. Talk to you later. That's it for this episode, but Jay and I will be back very shortly with the full-length bonus episode in which we will be talking about, well, Joe Manchin calling for a strategic pause on spending, Social Security and Medicare insolvency, the House Armed Services Committee uh, authorizing more money for defense than President Biden asked for, and Kevin McCarthy's uh, warning or threat to firms complying with the January 6th commission data request. All of that will be on the bonus show that should be here again, probably about three or four hours later than normal or after this show, just because Jay had to juggle around some stuff on his schedule. And if you'd like to get that, well, if you're a Patreon supporter, it will be in that feed. And if you're not a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash politics guys to check it out and hopefully sign up. And again, if you'd like to get that bonus show, but you can't afford to support the show right now financially, totally not a problem. Email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen. One thing we'd really appreciate is if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews on your podcast app of choice, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. If you've got a question, comment, correction, just want to get in touch with us for any reason, our email address is mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links for those in our show notes. A very special thanks, as always, to our excellent executive producers of the Politics Guys, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.